With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Full malcontent. And so are we. Mojo 5 I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created black men thinking freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction we didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream the only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it protect it defend it and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same Black men thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking, thinking, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black men thinking, thinking, thinking. Stanley Levy, Black Men Thinking, here on the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, Mojo 50 Radio. Also, WDDQ Talk 92.1 FM in Valdosta, Georgia. WJHC, Talk 107.5 North Florida Talk Radio, Freedom in America Radio.com, and WLBB News Talk AM 1330 and FM 106.3 in Carrollton, Georgia. Happy to be with you. Uh, we took a little bit of break, uh, took Thanksgiving off, and then had to extend that to another week, but uh, very happy to be back. And let's start with something that is always appropriate for this program and for any other program that wants to talk about the issues of the day. Stay focused. Talk about the things that matter to people. It's the economy, stupid. Yes, Virginia, there is an economy. And if you will notice, and I'll just make this very, very clear, 
the progressives in this country, whether they are Democrat or Republican, are doing everything they can to distract from the only issue that matters, and that's the economy. Now, why do I say the only issue that matters? Because the economy affects every aspect of American life. If you are able to make money, if you are able to increase your earnings, if you actually have enough opportunities so that you can migrate and choose for yourself or have better options to choose for yourself, how you are going to support your family, where you are going to support your family, and have the ability to increase your earnings. There is nothing more important. There is nothing anywhere near as important as that for the American people. Now, I'm not saying there are not other political issues, social issues, etc., but I'm sorry, economic liberty, which is what a strong economy provides, is the principal issue in maintaining this or any other republic. We just simply need to understand that. So, as we do periodically, not every month, <laughs> but... um Every so often, we go ahead and we're going to take a look at the economy. I don't even know how much other stuff we're going to get to in this first hour of the show. We'll see. Um, but we, I'm, I'm going to talk about the economy. Let's first bear something in mind. Because what happened this past Friday when the uh, economic numbers came out, the jobs report came out, I was reminded of something that was said by candidate Donald Trump. We will have so much winning if I get elected. We're going to have win after win after win that you may get bored with winning. We're going to win, we're going to win, and we're going to win. CNN projects that Donald Trump will be the winner of the... I just picked up that guy right there and I hugged him. Trump, Trump, Trump. <laughs> so exciting. He'll make an awesome president. It feels like we won the f***ing Super Bowl. It's a huge victory for Trump. We start bragging right now. We are going to start winning again. And we're going to win so much, you're going to be so happy. Yeah, Trump number one. He's the next president of the United States. Yeah, build the wall, baby. The biggest landslide in the history of the United States is Ronald Reagan. USA! 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 We are Did you, did you hear that? So Donald Trump, back in 2016, because that compilation uh, was made back in February of 2016. Uh, well, obviously, they talked about the um, election results later that year. He told you, we're going to win. And he told you that the economy was going to get better. And he said you're going to win so much that you're going to get tired of winning. He said all this. He made it very clear. And then the interesting thing to me is that in the midst of all the success that the U.S. economy has experienced under Donald Trump, when the figures came out for November, uh, came out this past Friday, when they came out for November, his response was, to me, a little bit understated, especially in light of um, what you would hear from him at one of his rallies. I will tell you the market is up 
325 points today on great job numbers. The numbers have been phenomenal, actually. Some people said uh, so spot on, so, so good that they've actually never seen anything like it. It's a long way from when people were rooting for a recession because they thought they could maybe win an election. But we don't root for a recession. We root for success, and we're having tremendous success. Let's not forget that there are people, particularly progressives, who are still trying to talk down this economy. They are still talking about a recession. They are doing everything they can. They are doing the same thing with respect to bringing down the economy that they were doing during the election to try to bring down Trump. If I say enough negative things over and over, I can talk the American people into bringing about what they don't even want. The only people in America who want a U.S. recession are people who have Trump derangement syndrome. And that would be primarily almost every House Democrat. And I say that because we do live in an age where the so-called moderate Democrat, where is he at? The conservative Democrat? The conservative Democrats left the Congress. They just left. Because after Obamacare passed in 2010, you can't find them. They left. And the moderate Democrats... They are being systematically crowded out by people as loony left as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, um, Rashida Tlaib. This is the Democrat Party now. And Nancy Pelosi is out there lying about having Catholic faith. She didn't have any faith. Let me make this clear. I don't care who says it. I can't think of anybody more godless in America in a public setting, in a public position, than Nancy Pelosi. She lies when she says she has any connection to God. She does not. You can't do what she does and have any she has no connection to morality or ethics. How can she have a connection to God? Well, Donald Trump's not a Christian. I don't care. He's not out there trying to he's not out there trying to um defend his actions based on faith in anything aside from the American people well you guys think he's a Christian I don't know whether or not he's a Christian I, if you ask me if I think he's a Christian my guess would be eh, no no more than most of the people in, the, in America uh, who call themselves Christian are I don't see that in Trump but that's beside the point he is looking for America to succeed. You cannot find a progressive in this country who wants America to succeed. Not one who's in politics. Not one who's in government. Not one who's in elected office. Almost to a person, they all want to see Donald Trump fail. Yeah, but you guys wanted Obama to fail. Of course we wanted Obama to fail so that he might change his policies. The problem is his policies went forward and America failed. We did okay. We've had a great economy. We did not have a great economy. We went through the only period in American history, for an eight-year period that is, where GDP did not reach eight I mean, excuse me, three percent in any year. We went through the Great Depression, and we were. 
people don't seem to realize is we were the only country who went through the Great Depression. Everyone else went through a depression. We're the only ones who went through a Great Depression because of the policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I digress. But even then, we didn't go through eight years of not having at least 3% annual GDP growth. Only Obama could accomplish that. Only Obama. So we're looking at this. Donald Trump is saying, I want people to succeed. I want America to succeed. I want us to win. Make me president. And I'm going to do some things that allow you to win. You're going to win so much. And we have been winning. Let me, let me bring, put something in perspective for you. Since Donald Trump has been in office, going through the November, up through the November report, he has the Amer- he hasn't the american economy has produced more than 6 and a half million jobs okay for the entire the entire obama administration i'm not counting the i'm not counting the the month in which he was first inaugurated but at, throwing that out the entire obama administration 8 years he created 11.3, more than 11.3 million jobs. Are you hearing me? Donald Trump has done, <laughs> he has done about 60% of what Obama did, and he's, done, and he's only in his third year. It took Obama to get to uh, eight years to get to 11 million jobs. It's only taken Donald Trump three years to get to six and a half, and we're not even done with this year yet. Are you catching on? Well, you know, Obama, Obama, you know what? You guys need to face the facts. Obama sucked on the economy, other things as well. But specifically on the economy, he was a failure. Is a failure. Never going to be anything other than a failure. He didn't want America to succeed. What he did was implement his policies, and if perchance America was successful, he'd go out and trumpet it. But he knew when he did things like try to stack the National Labor Relations Board during a Senate recess, he knew the people he was, he was putting on there were going to lessen the opportunity for Americans to work. He knew this. He did it anyway. He knew this. He knew that all the regulations that he was putting in place were going to be burdensome to small business to the point where they're going to spend so much time trying to comply with regulations, they're going to have less time to run their business. He knew this. He did it anyway. And as a result, he earned the title, earned it, of the welfare president. You had poverty. You had welfare at an unprecedented scale under that president. The economy was pathetic. And I know how everybody tries to cherry pick one thing or another about expansions and this, that, and the other. The expansion was not reaching enough people. Maybe you're not aware of this, but the labor participation rate in this country, when when Barack Obama took office, it was nearly 66%. Nearly. It was 65.7% when he took office. 
by the time of his reelection, we were under 64% and didn't look back. It kept falling. It was under 3% by January of 2014, and it stayed there until he left office. This is what we mean when we say people were not working under Barack Obama. Well, what about Trump? You know what? Here's the interesting thing about Trump. The labor participation rate has finally gotten back above and stayed above 63% under Donald Trump. It's now there. And it looks like maybe it's going to stay there because unemployment continues to drop. There continue to be more jobs than there are people available to fill those positions. Consequently, you're going to have to see, don't know how long it's going to take, I'll be honest, you're going to have to see an increase in labor force participation. And it seems to be, it seems to be starting, seems to be. But it didn't happen under Barack Obama. So everyone who tries to tell me that Barack Obama did something, did something, and I say, look at the numbers. How come the how come the job force, the U.S. labor force, kept dropping? Why? Because Barack Obama was more interested in jobs being sent overseas than people working here. Because he believed, remember, he was someone who was a big fan of NAFTA, he was also a big fan of uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was not only going to send jobs overseas, it was going to allow other countries to look at how people in America, companies in America, did their business and sanction them if for some reason it didn't go the way they wanted. And there were people in America who thought that was a good idea, to have foreign governments looking into our business climate and dictating what they thought was appropriate. It's not appropriate. It's not good for them to do that. But they were cool with it. And I can't tell you why. But here is what I do want to tell you. We did... You you heard um, Donald Trump's kind of understated um, credit that he was taking, not for himself, but for the American people and what they were now doing with an economy that had fewer restrictions on them. Well, some of the uh, mainstream media actually wanted to give credit. Well, you know, it's kind of hard not to give credit, to be honest with you, because the numbers are the numbers. Unless you're MSNBC, which talks down everything that Trump would do, um, you had people trying to at least be honest with the numbers. Here's what Yahoo Finance had to say about the jobs report when it came out on Friday, December 6th. Welcome back to this Yahoo Finance special jobs report. Here's a look at how the futures are reacting to that jobs report. Rallies all the way around. Dow futures up 174. S&P futures up 18. We've got NASDAQ futures rallying 62 points on news that the economy added 266,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate ticking down to 3.5% and wages uh, up 3.1% year over year. By nearly every metric, this report beat what the street was expecting. And, of course, we all want to know what this might mean for the Federal Reserve. They will have their last policy meeting 
meeting of the year next week. Yahoo Finance's Brian Chung is in our newsroom with more on that. So, Brian, I think the market certainly likes this report. There was not an expectation that the Fed would move next week, but we will get new economic projections. What do you think this means for the Fed? Well, whoa, what a big labor market report for the last month. It did have a quite impressive beat of 266,000. That did beat the consensus of 180,000. So that is well above trend for what we've seen in the past few reports, basically since the end of the summer, where the trend has been about 160,000. Some expected it to be 180,000 because of the offset from the ending of the GM strike. But what we've seen is that Fed funds futures markets were pretty much set already on the idea of there being no change to the federal funds rate. That is the benchmark interest rate in the United States in the Fed's final meeting of 2019. That will come next. Wednesday headed into the job support today. The expectation on the street based on Fed funds futures contracts was actually a 99.3% chance of no change at all with only a 0.7% chance of a hike here. And the only thing that you would see from a labor market report that would tell you or justify any case for a rate hike would be any sort of runaway inflationary pressures that you would see from wage growth, which even though it did beat expectations, it only beat expectations by 0.1%. So not necessarily telling you based on the support, although you could call it hot, that there are runaway wage pressures, which means that the Federal Reserve's thesis for right now that they can let the economy run hot at the current level of 1.75 uh, to 1.75% is pretty much okay for the time being. Miles? And, you know, Brian, we've been talking about this idea, I think you and I have talked about this, that Jay Powell is so sure that he's done the right thing, that he, you know, really has his uh, hand on the right policy levers right now. I sort of wonder if you could make the argument that he would look at the support and say, actually, I should cut rates because what, cutting rates is so effective and helps the economy so much and there's so much slack left that maybe I should goose this thing along. He yeah, won't well, do that, but you could make that <laughs> argument if you wanted to. Well, that is part of his thesis so far, saying that he's actually comfortable with having more accommodative uh, rates than what they call the R-star, the neutral rate of the economy, because they want the labor market to continue to run hot. Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve never expected the unemployment rate to be at 3.5%. They thought that the natural rate was somewhere, uh, you know, 200 per, uh, basis points above that. So the Federal Reserve is comfortable with letting that run, but they don't want to provide too much accommodation. Jay Powell has said that he doesn't want to provide that too much leverage to the system as well. So kind of a pushback on that point. But it seems like for right now, this seems to reinforce that rates will stay where they are for right now. Did you hear him? 266,000 jobs were created in the month of November 2019 and the experts expected 180,000. Do you realize that's more than a 40% increase over what was expected? Actually it's more than 45%. Did you hear that Year over year, wages are going up at 3.1%. Inflation is not 3.1%. I, I mean, I, I think somebody needs to make sure they understand that. Because inflation right now for 2019 is projected to be 1.8% at least through November. So, wow, wage growth, wage growth is 70% above the rate of inflation. And job growth is ridiculous. Donald Trump has put together a government scenario that has allowed the, United, the people of the United States to create nearly 6.5 million jobs in less than three years, because he's been in office less than three years. And not only that, their wages are going up. Not only that, there's no inflation, or very little inflation. What, what could be wrong with this? Help a brother out. 
what could be wrong with this? Well, the thing that's wrong with it is that it tells everybody that the uh, the Democrat Party of the United States is fraudulent. Every time they tell you that they care about the American people, they are lying. Every time they tell you that, you, that they have a plan for America that's going to help um, America economically, they are lying. How do we know that? They had eight years of a president in place who had no policy prescriptions that would help the economy. None. Now, if you want to make the argument, and you can, that for six of the eight years that he was in office, uh, speaking of Barack Obama, the Republican Party controlled the House. That's very true. Because they didn't get the Senate back, the GOP didn't get the Senate back till 2014. But they got the House back in 2010. So from 2010 until uh, Barack Obama left office, the GOP ran the House and did nothing. Did nothing. They blamed the Senate. And up until 2014, you could do that. So what happened between 2014 and 2016? Well, you could make the argument that it was simply a one-man blockage. Barack Obama wasn't going to sign anything that was going to help the American economy that was not in his constitution that was not in his makeup he wasn't going to do that and guess what the Republicans in the House and Senate had neither the votes nor the backbone to to pass legislation and invite a veto and make their case to the American people they weren't going to do that matter of fact the Republicans didn't even slow down spending while they had the opportunity. Wow. I'm going to come back in the next segment and continue talking about this outstanding jobs report and what it means. Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking, we'll be back right after this. Here's hoping that Santa doesn't get lost using Apple Maps this Christmas. <laughs> Mojo 5 Merry Christmas! Fast Track Student Loans can get your student loans out of default, stop any wage garnishments, stop collection calls, and stop seizure of your tax refund. Give yourself a break. Stop the stress and get your student loan payments down to as little as $25 a month based on what you can afford to pay. 800 708-9435, 800-709-4395, 800-709-4395, 800-709-4395. Hi there, Watson Prunier here from Battle for Freedom. Friedrich August von Hayek once stated, We must face the fact that the preservation of individual freedom is incompatible with a full satisfaction of our views of distributive justice. Battle for Freedom is about providing and proving that the fundamental principles of liberty go well beyond a political party. This is a middle-of-the-road point of view that tries to remain as unbiased as possible with a few exceptions. Battle for Freedom airs Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Mojo 5 Radio, covering topics about truth, faith, politics, and more. Join me on Battle for Freedom 
as we explore how we can approach society in the best way possible while making all people free at no expense to the freedoms and liberties of our fellow Americans. Keep your holiday spirit safe. Drink responsibly. <laughs> Mojo Five O. There is an economy. There's a reason I chose that topic. In the same way that people are being, um, were doubting that there was a Santa Claus. And I, of course, I know there wasn't, but they made a movie um, <laughs> to deal with that. They are doing something similar regarding something that's much more real than Santa Claus. There is an economy, and it is a good economy. It is the best economy we have seen in decades. Not just in years, in decades. So it's more than an Obama thing. You have to go back into last century before you would see an economy that was anywhere near this good. It's really that simple. Now, Donald Trump was kind of muted for him uh, in discussing how, how good the November numbers were. He just said they were very good. And he said the markets were responding well. Which is true. I wonder how many people have um, gotten this, because this, this, that's part of how they talk down the economy. The stock market, Dow Jones Industrial Average, hit 28,000. And was that 28,000 on Friday? I don't think it ever hit 28,000 under Barack Obama. I thought the market was doing terrible. And I will go full disclosure. I am not somebody who looks at the Dow Jones Industrial Average or NASDAQ or S&P and think that means we have a good economy because I know what quantitative easing was and what it did during the Obama years and maybe a little bit before trying to continue to prop up an economy that was not getting any or prop up a market, financial market, that was not the only place you could go to make money was the markets because because of quantitative easing, because they were monetizing the debt, you couldn't get any returns elsewhere. You had to go to the market or you had to create your own investment opportunities. So I didn't think it was real. And the fact that the economy did so poorly, even, that, even as the stock market was doing well, kind of validated that thought in my mind. The stock market is not a great indicator of economic health when the federal government is cooking the books by pumping money into it. But um, as I said, Donald Trump was a little bit low-key about the numbers, and I played the part from um, Yahoo Finance where they were very matter-of-fact and went immediately from the great numbers to start talking about something that, well, what does that mean for the uh, Federal Reserve interest rates? Are they going to move? 
and they're trying to actually talk down the results by saying, well, it's not going to change the uh, federal interest rate, so uh, you know, I don't know how good it is. Really? Okay. So let's go to somebody who's a little bit more pro, let's, I'll acknowledge it, pro-Trump. Let's look at Fox Business. Fox Business looked at the numbers, and they had a much more enthusiastic reaction. I'm right. 266,000 jobs were created in November, 154,000 in the private sector, 12,000 in the government sector. The unemployment rate ticked down again to 3.5%. Now, the revisions in the right direction going up in September, 13,000 jobs. In October, going up 28,000 jobs. That's an addition of 41,000 jobs for the net revisions. Uh, the U6 uh, ticked down 0.1% to 6.9%. Long-term unemployment is 20.8%. Now, the average hourly wages ticked up 0.2% month over month. That's up 3.1% over the past 12 months, up 7 cents there. Labor force participation rate, little change uh, at 63.2%. Uh, average hourly work week unchanged at 34.4%. Non-supervisory wages rose 7 cents. A white unemployment rate, 3.2%. Black unemployment rate, 5.5%. Hispanic unemployment rate, 4.2%. And Asian unemployment rate, 2.6%. And in some of the sectors, healthcare added 45,000 jobs. That sector has added 440 14,000 jobs over the past 12 months. Manufacturing up 54,000 jobs, but 41,000 jobs of those is related to the strike. Uh, that's in uh, motor vehicles and parts coming back. Mining lost 7,000 jobs, down 19,000 jobs since the peak in May. Retail up 2,000 jobs, and leisure and hospitality added 45,000 jobs. That's 219,000 jobs in that sector alone over the past four months. So the bottom line, the economy created uh, 266,000 jobs, and the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5. And that was, I believe, Maria Bartiroma, Bartiromo, excuse me, at the end saying it's a blowout. That's exactly what it is. They were expecting 180,000. They came in with 266. Year over year wage growth is 3.1% over inflation. That's 1.8%. So people are getting more money in their pockets, more real dollars in their pockets because inflation is not eating it up at the rate at a rate that's larger than their, than the, than their increase. That's what's happening. So, and I'm sorry, manufacturing's coming back. Does anybody remember how um, quid pro quo or quid pro Joe Biden uh, was telling people that those manufacturing jobs aren't coming back? Well, they are coming back. And the only reason they are coming back is because no one's following Democrat, progressive Obama policies. Those policies have been scrapped. We have said America is open for business. On top of that, business tax rates have been reduced to make it more attractive to be here. But, well, you know, as Fox, Fox is in the pocket of Donald Trump. Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Not so sure about that. But here's something else. Jim Cramer of CNBC I don't think politically he's in anybody's pocket. He's a money guy. And he's very good at what he does. Widely respected. And he had this response to the numbers when they came out. Listen carefully to what this veteran of the financial markets, financial reporting, and all things in dealing with money, here's what he had to say about what was going on with respect to these numbers that came out last Friday. 
looking at the New York Post website for a correction of that story they wrote about uh, on Monday about how December uh, wasn't starting out so good uh, and how wrong you were going to be. I, they're not. I, I'm not. It's not forthcoming. I don't think. But you were exactly right about, uh, what a about number. The, the economic backdrop and there's good things happening and it, it validates some of the moves, right? Growth with very little inflation. I wish people were making a little more money. Obviously, Joe, we want people to make more money. There's a fellow by the name of Michael Semblis. I don't know if you know him, but he is the uh, chairman of market and investment strategy at J.P. Morgan. He came up with a list of what the cable companies, cable, CNN, MSN, what do they cover? The number 16th, 16th is positive economic news. All the rest of them are negative. So you know what's going on here, Joe. People don't want to say good things. And this is the best number I've ever seen in my life. Is it going to, is it, well, I said this earlier, I, and, and is it, can it last forever, Jim? How can it last forever? Uh, unless it's a participation rate. And it, is it, if you, no, I think you can, it has to go up, Joe, because when we win the trade war, which you know we're going to win now because we have the better numbers, then they're going to have to put jobs here. That's what they're going to have to do. We're not even talking about that yet. In the end, the Chinese are going to have to put jobs here because this thing is, uh, you, the president can walk away from the table with this number. You are so anti-normal, uh, knee-jerk thinking of the MSM. So we could actually have more jobs coming back if we win the trade war. No, you won't see that written or said anywhere. Well, you know, sometimes the truth sets people free. Yeah, that's a beautiful Look, love. Joe, you and I both know. These are 50 years, okay? Now, I'm 64. I didn't know about things were in 13, last 13, 14, other than the war. But these are, I'm not going to say it. You can't, you can't contradict that these are the best numbers of our lives. Yeah. You can't. I mean, we had guns and butter when we were doing these things 50 years ago. And that followed with inflation and recession. I don't see inflation. I don't see recession. 50 years ago, that number was a curse. Now it's a blessing. And you know something, Joe? It doesn't. I can't. It doesn't matter whether you hate them or like them. These are real numbers. Someone yeah. said Janet Yellen numbers. I, 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 that well, was funny. Since 1969, that's literally yeah. I've been alive. Well, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not from the Navin Johnson School of Economics. The best numbers in his life. The best numbers he's ever seen. Wow. He also brought up the fact that uh, of the talking down of the economy. He said he looked at all this, all the cable reports and all they do is talk negative about the economy. He said like 16th out of all the things they talk about is, is uh, positive stuff about the economy. Everything else is negative. How do you talk down an economy? Why would you talk down an economy that's producing this many jobs? That's producing numbers that a veteran like Jim Cramer has never seen before. They are that good. And why aren't you talking about the trade war? The trade war is over. The so-called trade war is over. The negotiation is over. China has lost. As Kramer said, with the numbers being this good, particularly relative to China's economy, which is not doing that good, plus they have the issue of what's going on in Hong Kong, which is not helping their economy. Donald Trump has won. He's already forced concessions out of China that nobody thought were possible, primarily because nobody ever sought to pursue them. They were happy to allow the Chinese to run over us. They didn't have any problem with that. Donald Trump did, said so during the camp. This is part of his winning. He said, our people aren't very smart. Whoever's doing this, these trade negotiations for us, they're not very smart. He made that statement very clearly. And now he's come in and changed this thing. Well, the trade of farmers are in bankruptcy. Really? Really? You know what? How come you weren't talking about bankrupt farmers when... During the last administration, I guarantee you, you had bankrupt farmers then. 
Guarantee you. And now we have people making massive soybean purchases, and that's China doing that. China. You have China lowering tariffs on cars. China lowering uh, tariffs on electronics, on airplane parts. The number of things on which China has lowered tariffs, and that doesn't even get reported. The only thing you hear about, oh, they're retaliating. They're retaliating. The problem is this. Every time Trump hits them, you find out that they were doing more in the the, uh, way of tariffs on goods coming into their country than Trump is even talking about. And the pressure has forced China to change. And now our numbers, our economic numbers are so good that China, if they're going to do anything as far as making money is concerned, they're going to have to not abandon their economy. They're going to have to expand and put their jobs here because this investment climate in this country laps what they have going on in theirs. So there's nothing to negotiate anymore. There's no reason for us to put jobs in China. Our economy is doing. Our economy is running well. Theirs is not, relatively speaking. So why would you put jobs in a poorer economy or a poorer performing economy when you can stay home and make more money? Why would China try to continue to pump up their economy and get left behind because they're not participating in the economy of the United States? How come no one's talking about this? Jim Cramer's talking about it. Jim Cramer's an expert. MSNBC is not. CNN is not. Why they want to ignore this? We already know why. Because to say anything positive about this economy helps Donald John Trump. They don't want to do that. So this is almost like out of the Wizard of Oz where you can see what's going on and then the the voice booms over the loudspeaker. Pay no attention to the man behind the screen because the man behind the screen is the one who's trying to trying to bellow and yell at you through a fake image in front of you that everything is terrible. Trump is terrible. He's they're laughing at him. They're doing all these other things. You think that Donald Trump cares that people laugh at him? Donald Trump's been laughed at for more than four decades. He's been in New York City, done all kinds of things. He's been sued by the federal government. He's been vilified for uh, going after the Central Park Five with a with a full page article in a newspaper. He's been he he's been you know he's been criticized for running uh, pageants. He's gone through bankruptcies. He's gone through divorces. And you think a man who's gone through all that really cares that you laugh as he rides on his private jet? Are you? Come on, guys, really? But here's what you don't get. Everybody who's laughing at him, as you say, oh, they're over at uh, G7 or wherever they are, and they're laughing at oh, NIA, the NATO meetings, and they're laughing at Donald Trump. You think so? When their economies are struggling and ours is not, you think they're laughing. And you believe that reporting. When they have to come deal with Donald Trump if they're going to move forward. They can't do they, their economies stink. That includes Canada. Fake eyebrow Trudeau has to come deal with Trump. Well, he's uh, talking behind his back. That's because Trudeau is stupid. If you didn't know that already, he's no he's he's a he's a male version of Angela Merkel. He will sell his country out 
for the whole idea of immigration of Muslims into his country. And that hasn't helped a soul, by the way. There is no country that is not Muslim that has benefited from Muslim immigration. Not one. Not one. And those who are doing best are keeping Muslim refugees out of their countries. Because they have, got, they have an understanding because of what happens for those who have already let in and in other countries where they have not put restrictions. Sweden is rape central. The Nordic states, to be honest with you, are all rape central. Germany still has a problem. Their women are being accosted and regularly. France has no go zones. All of this going on. And do you think this helps their economy or hurts it? Do you think having all these Muslim refugees come in and suck down social services, which is what happens, Oh, you're, you're against Muslims. No, I'm not against Muslims. I understand what is going on with Islam, and this is going on by design. They are looking to take down the West, and this is the way to do it without firing a shot. Send your people there, because these idiots in the West will, will are so bent on having social safety nets that they will pay our people to do nothing in their country and They'll run out of money. They'll, they'll spend themselves broke taking care of us. We will not assimilate. We will not try to become part of their country. We are simply going to take their money and continue to demand things of them and drive their tax rates higher and drive their ability to care for their own people who are not migrants and refugees. We will make it more difficult for them to do that. We will make them spend themselves dry. And if you think this is not part of why these economies in Europe and Asia, well, maybe not China, because China, 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 will put, China will put Muslims in concentration camps. They already have. they got a million of them over there. If you think that that is not impacting the economic performance over there, well, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. And I'm not the only person saying this. The chief economist for KPNG also came out on the 6th of December when this when the jobs report for November was announced and she had this to say it's the first Friday of the month and that means I just got off Bloomberg TV talking about the jobs report the November jobs report came in above expectations it is the 110th consecutive month of job gains in our record 11-year expansion so the US economy is doing well the Fed's rate cuts this year have helped uh, maintain a growth pace that while is slowing from the beginning of the year is still strong and what we would want at this phase of the business cycle globally uh, the global economy is still experiencing some weakness and some bumps in the road but in the United States we are seeing the jobs market and the consumer continuing to carry the torch and to be the backbone of what we expect to be an extended expansion due to the Fed's rate changes this year. Here is the takeaway from that short report from the chief economist at KPMG. The rest of the world sucks. The United States economy is, is killing it. Everyone else is having weakness. Almost everyone else is having weakness. All the other major countries in the world, their economies are struggling. Their economies are hitting bumps in the road. The U.S. economy is blowing it out. Are you, are you hearing that yet? 
or are you caught up in listening to what doesn't matter? What do I mean by listening to what doesn't matter? How about how about impeachment? How about one-sided accusations or one-sided hearings and inquiries where you only present the side of the argument that supports your foregone conclusion that this president is so terrible that he must be removed. Let's ignore the fact that what you're calling a high crime or high misdemeanor, and I'm talking about the uh, so-called quid pro quo, which I find is fascinating considering Donald Trump is accused of doing but did not do exactly what Joe Biden acknowledged that he did. No action was taken against Joe Biden, but now you're trying to impeach Trump. So where was, and you didn't need a whistleblower, let me help you out, you didn't need a whistleblower with Joe Biden because that big dummy broadcasted himself exactly what he did. I told him that I was going to I was going to hold up this uh this loan um guarantee if you didn't fire this guy and in 6 hours they fired the guy and therefore I let him have the 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 uh, loan guarantee seriously if what Trump did in asking for a favor and making no reference to whether or not any money would be withheld if that's a problem please explain to me how Joe Biden hasn't been thrown out of the Democrat nomination race in disgrace. Now, of course, there is also the possibility that he could get perp-walked, he and his son, or at least his son, because that investigation is ongoing. You're not hearing anything about it, because unlike the Mueller investigation, where it was all about trying to generate uh, headlines, almost daily headlines and everything else, and it leaked like a sieve because the whole idea was trying to give fodder so that you could find some way to damage Trump either in 2018 and especially in 2020. This other investigation that we know about is actually being run like something real, which means you'll hear about it when they either say they found nothing or when they announce indictments or even plea bargains. That's what's going on with Attorney General Barr and uh, the U.S. Attorney uh, Dunham, I believe is his name. And what Attorney General Barr announced as something he couldn't understand back in April, which is why nobody's looked in to the origins of the, of the uh, Trump-Russia hoax, became a criminal investigation in October. It started out as something, just, just take a look around, and now it's gone into a criminal investigation. And if the feds come for you, and if they find anything, you're going to jail. Their their rate of putting people away is well over ninety percent. And if you go to and if you uh, get a federal sentence, you will do almost every second of that time. I digress. So why is it that the Democrats don't want to talk about the economy? They know it's good. They know it's outstanding. They know it blows away anything that they did, either when they had a House majority between 2009 and 2017, because they did have it for a while. They had a, they had a House majority for two years. They had a Senate majority for six years. And they accomplished nothing with respect to improving the American economy. 
So why do they not want to talk about the economy now? Because to talk about the economy now, when they have no ideas that would get them close, they have no policy prescriptions. They have no ideas that would get them close to what Donald Trump is doing right now. So why talk about it? Let's talk about how cruel he is. Let's talk about how mean he is. Let's call him racist. Let's call him misogynist. And the interesting thing is, Donald Trump has been in the public eye since the 1970s or 80s in New York City, which is still in this country outside of San Francisco and the loons in California, liberal and progressive central. If Donald Trump was a racist, we would have known about this by now. If Donald Trump were a racist, I don't know if Jesse Jackson would have been hugging him up and telling him how much he had done for black people. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know if Al Sharpton would be someone who would go to his roast and participate laughing it up with Donald Trump. I, I, I don't know. If, because, as you know, um, Al, Al Sharpton can find racism in a ham sandwich. But he didn't seem to find it in Trump until after he became president. Or after he announced that he was going to run for president. Up until then, he was cool with him. Matter of fact, everybody black was cool with him, and he was cool with everybody black. Trump hasn't changed. But this all boils down to what Al Green, the, um, the black uh, stooge in the uh, Clown Brown Caucus, who has been trying to introduce unsuccessfully up, until the, up to this point, Articles of impeachment now looks like they're drafting going to do it another way. They they threw Al Green out there as a trial balloon to see to take the temperature and figure out how they were going to get there, and now they've kicked him to the curb and he's crying about how come we don't have any black we don't have any black witnesses to these uh, impeachment uh, inquiries and hearings because they don't give a rat's behind about what y'all rhymes with regrows think they never did. You are tools. You are not anything that they take seriously. But as Al Green said, we must impeach this president because if we don't impeach him, we are afraid that he'll get reelected. And that's all you need to know. Let's not talk about what matters to the American people. Talk about things that matter. Let's not talk about the economy. Let's talk about what happens to us if we don't find a way to undo their choice. Because Donald Trump was their choice. And Donald Trump has come through for the American people. He did not come through for progressives, and if he continues to be successful, it means that progressives are looking at a tough road to hoe before they can ever get back to power, because the American people are watching them. And everybody, as a matter of fact, the majority of the country, they're not progressives. And, they're, and even the progressives, the honest ones, they do exist, can tell when they're being had. There is an economy. And it trumps, pardon the pun, everything that the Democrats are doing. Stanley Levy, black man thinking. I'm going to turn this over to my good friend, Ron Edwards. And after, the, after that, we'll be back with our number two. The decision by Chick-fil-A to cave into leftist agitators sets a bad example for America's young people. Hello, I'm... Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. It's bad enough the current flock of decision makers at Chick-fil-A have chosen the limited power of the leftist LGBTQ agitators over the sovereign God they used to honor. 
Their business practices have been above board and second to none. Despite being closed on Sundays and ongoing attacks from the political left, Chick-fil-A grew to become the third largest fast food restaurant chain in America. It used to be the Chick-fil-A way attracted throngs of enthusiastic customers from most walks of life, including millions of young Americans. What Chick-fil-A used to exhibit was if you honor God, he will bless you greatly for all to see. They were a marketplace ministry witness of God's grace and blessing to those who choose to operate according to his principles. Unfortunately, Chick-fil-A has now reversed course, setting a bad example by turning away from what made them great. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out theronedwards.talkspot.com for news updates and other great stuff. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. This is the seditious, rabble-rousing, liberty-loving, home of fun, entertaining, and compelling talk. Mojo Five O. Breaking news this hour from townhall.com. I'm Keith Peters. Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee outlined their case to impeach the president today, while Republicans say Democrats have no solid impeachable evidence. Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler summarizes the Democrat charges of presidential wrongdoing. He placed his own private interests ahead of our national security and the integrity of our elections, and constitutes a continuing threat. Florida Congressman Greg Stubbe argues that judiciary hearings are a flawed excess of opinion devoid of fact. We have been denied a minority hearing day, which I asked for the last hearing. All we have had testify are partisan lawyers giving their opinions. Democrats are said to be preparing at least two articles of impeachment against the president with a Judiciary Committee vote as soon as this week. George Vanzani reporting. And tonight, the Democrats say they will level two articles of impeachment against President Trump. The Supreme Court today declined to take on a challenge by the ACLU to a Kentucky pro-life law requiring a doctor to display and describe an ultrasound of the unborn child to his or her mother before conducting an abortion. Matt Staver of Liberty Council tells Salem Radio News this is an important victory. We know that from surveys and from practical experience that whenever someone sees an ultrasound and they actually get a chance to see the baby and even hear the fetal heartbeat, they more often than not, in fact, up into the 70 plus percent, they change their decision and they decide not to abort. That's why these abortion clinics don't want women seen an ultrasound. Kentucky Right to Life President Diana Maldonado called it the best possible news. The Justice Department's internal watchdog says the FBI was justified in opening its investigation into ties between the Trump presidential campaign and in Russia, but identified serious performance failures up the FBI's chain of command. Attorney General William Barr has rejected the main conclusions of the report. More on these stories at townhall.com. Trading involves... Going from A to B may involve X, Y, and Z. Off track with Whiskey Six, Sundays from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern from Mojo 5 Here's to the holiday spirit. 
festive season. And hoping you still fit in your clothes when it's all over. Uh. <sighs> Mojo Five O. The Bells of Liberty. Three sassy conservatarian ladies talking politics. We know that all you want to do is take guns away from people. Don't be, don't be dishonest. Pop culture. Valkyrie, she's yes. got a flying horse. She doesn't need Karen and the Karenettes, okay? And everything in between. So basically, it's just people, schmucks like us sitting around a <laughs> room like, you know what we could do? We can basically put up sunglasses around the earth, <laughs> and that will stop climate change. Join Rocky, Jaina, and me Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern for the all That's what she said. All right, ladies, let's wrap this up. I got to go work in the morning. Okay, we got to do it again because Sammy cut out. What the? <laughs> Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-452-1075. 800-452-1075. That's 800-452-1075. Mojo Five O. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created in Black men thinking. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. Black men thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black men thinking, thinking, thinking. Stanley Levy with Hour 2 of Black Men Thinking here on the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, Mojo 5.0 Radio. Also, WDDQ, Talk 92.1 FM down in Valdosta, Georgia. WJHC, Talk 107.5 North Florida Talk Radio. FreedomInAmericaRadio.com. And WLBB News Talk AM 1330 
and FM 106.3 in Carrollton, Georgia. Back on the 4th of December, I'm turning my attention now to the impeachment circus, four law professors showed up at uh, Chairman Nadler's committee hearing and offered their views with regard to the proceedings. All four are liberal law professors, but one of them is not a progressive and he doesn't suffer from Trump derangement syndrome, and that would be Jonathan Turley. He offered this, distinct from the other three, he offered this as his opening statement before the committee. Thank you, Chairman Nadler, Ranking Member Collins, members of the Judiciary Committee. It's an honor to appear before you today to discuss one of the most consequential functions you were given by the framers, and that is the impeachment of a President of the United States. Twenty-one years ago, I sat before you, Chairman Nadler, and this committee to testify at the impeachment of President William Jefferson Clinton. I never thought that I would have to appear a second time to address the same question with regard to another sitting president. Yet here we are. The elements are strikingly similar. The intense rancor and rage of the public debate is the same. It's the atmosphere that the framers anticipated. The stifling intolerance of opposing views is the same. I'd like to start, therefore, perhaps incongruously, by stating an irrelevant fact. I'm not a supporter of President Trump. I voted against him. My personal views of President Trump are as irrelevant to my impeachment testimony as they should be to your impeachment vote. President Trump will not be our last president, and what we leave in the wake of this scandal will shape our democracy for generations to come. I'm concerned about lowering impeachment standards to fit a paucity of evidence and an abundance of anger. I believe this impeachment not only fails to satisfy the standard of past impeachments, but would create a dangerous precedent for future impeachments. My testimony lays out the history of impeachment from early English cases to colonial cases to the present day. The early impeachments were raw political exercises using fluid definitions of criminal and non-criminal acts. When the framers met in Philadelphia, they were quite familiar with impeachment and its abuses, including the Hastings case, which was discussed in the convention, a case that was still pending for trial in England. Unlike the English impeachments, the American model was more limited, not only in its application to judicial and executive officials, but its grounds. The framers rejected a proposal to add maladministration because Madison objected that so vague a term would be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. In the end, various standards that had been used in the past were rejected. Corruption, obtaining office by improper means, betraying the trust of a foreign, to a foreign power, negligence, perfidy, peculation, and oppression. Perfidy or lying and peculation, self-dealing, are particularly relevant to our current controversy. My testimony explores the impeachment cases of Nixon, Johnson, and Clinton. The closest of these three cases is to the 1868 impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It is not a model or an association that this committee should relish. In that case, a group of opponents of the presidents called the Radical Republicans created a trapdoor crime in order to impeach the president. They even defined it as a high misdemeanor. 
There was another shared aspect besides the atmosphere of that impeachment and also the unconventional style of the two presidents. And that shared element is speed. This impeachment would rival the Johnson impeachment as the shortest in history, depending on how one counts the relevant days. Now, there are three distinctions when you look at these, or the three commonalities when you look at these past cases. All involved established crimes. This would be the first impeachment in history where there would be considerable debate, and in my view, not compelling evidence of the commission of a crime. Second is the abbreviated period of this investigation, which is problematic and puzzling. This is a facially incomplete and inadequate record in order to impeach a president. Allow me to be candid in my closing remarks because we have limited time. We are living in the very period described by Alexander Hamilton, a period of agitated passions. I get it. You're mad. The president's mad. My Republican friends are mad. My Democratic friends are mad. My wife is mad. My kids are mad. Even my dog seems mad. And Loon is a golden doodle, and, and they don't get mad. So we're all mad. Where has that taken us? Will a slipshod impeachment make us less mad? Will it only invite an invitation for the madness to follow every future administration? That is why this is wrong. It's not wrong because President Trump is right. His call is anything but perfect. It's not wrong because the House has no legitimate reason to investigate the Ukrainian controversy. It's not wrong because we're in an election year. There is no good time for an impeachment. No, it's wrong because this is not how you impeach an American president. This case is not a case of the unknowable. It's a case of the peripheral. We have a record of conflicts, defenses that have not been fully considered, unsubpoenaed witness with material evidence. To impeach a president on this record would expose every future president to the same type of inchoate impeachment. Principle often takes us to a place we would prefer not to be. That was the place seven Republicans found themselves in the Johnson trial, when they saved a president from acquittal that they despised. For generations, they've been celebrated as profiles of courage. Senator Edmund Ross said it was like looking down into his open grave. Then he jumped because he didn't have any alternative. It's easy to celebrate those people from the distance of time and circumstance in the age of rage. It's appealing to listen to those saying, forget the definitions of crimes, just do it. Like this is some impulse by Nike sneaker. You can certainly do that. You can declare the definitions of crimes alleged are immaterial and just an exercise of politics, not the law. However, those legal definitions and standards, which I've addressed in my testimony, are the very thing that divide rage from reason. This all brings up to me, and I will conclude with this, of a scene from A Man for All Seasons by, with Sir Thomas More when his son-in-law, William Roper, put the law, suggested that More was putting the law ahead of morality. He said More would give the devil the benefit of the law. When Moore asks Roper, would he instead cut a great road through the law to get after the devil, Roper proudly declares, yes, I'd cut down every law of England to do that. Moore responds, and when the last law is cut down and the devil turned around on you, where would you hide, Roper? 
all the laws being flat. He said, this country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? And he finished by saying, yes, I'd give the, the devil the benefit of a law for my own sake. So I will conclude with this. Both sides of this controversy have demonized the other to justify any measure in their defense, much like Roper. Perhaps that's the saddest part of all of this. We have forgotten the common article of faith that binds each of us to each other in our Constitution. However, before we cut down the trees so carefully planted by the framers, I hope you will consider what you will do when the wind blows again, perhaps for a Democratic president. Where will you stand then when all the laws being flat? Thank you again for the honor of testifying today, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. A very interesting statement. I think it was a very good statement. However, I take issue with it. Let me tell you why. Mr. Turley said two things which are not congruent with progressivism and as it particularly as is practiced by House Democrats. They're not interested in there being another president. They would be perfectly happy if Donald Trump were the last president. They haven't rejected the idea of articles of faith in you know that, that bind us together in the Constitution. They've rejected the Constitution. They have turned it on its head with the notion that they, as the legislative branch, have power over the executive branch, and that's not what's in the Constitution. They want to make the presidency untenable. That's what they're doing, and they're doing it on purpose because they want to bring the country down. They want government of, by, and for the people to disappear. That is the only reason for trying to remove a duly elected president. You do not want the people to govern. Now, I believe his name is Jonathan, but Mr. Ratcliffe, uh, another Republican representative, questioned or took um, Mr. Turley on, not negatively, but drew him out on some other things that he, on some of the things that he had said. That's how this is how this questioning um, played out. Thank you, Chairman. Professor Turley, I'd like to start where you started, because you said something that I think bears repeating. You said, I'm not a supporter of President Trump. I voted against him in 2016, and I have previously voted for Presidents Clinton and Obama. But despite your political preferences and persuasions, you reached this conclusion. The current legal case for impeachment is not just woefully inadequate, but in some respects dangerous as the basis for impeachment of an American president. So let me start by commending you for being the kind of example of what hopefully everyone on this committee will do as we approach the task that we have of determining whether or not there were any impeachable offenses here. One of the problems uh, that you've articulated as leading uh, you to the conclusion of calling this the, should it proceed, the shortest impeachment proceeding with the thinnest evidentiary record and the narrowest grounds ever attempted to impeach a president is the fact that there has been this ever-changing, constantly evolving, uh, moving target of accusations, if you will. The July 25th phone call um, started out as an alleged quid pro quo and briefly became an extortion scheme, a bribery scheme. I think it's back to quid pro quo. Now, besides pointing out that both Speaker Pelosi and uh, Chairman Schiff 
waited until almost every witness had been deposed before they even started to use the term bribery. I think you've clearly articulated why you think the definitions that they have used publicly uh, are flawed, if not unconstitutional, uh, both in the 18th century or in the 21st century. Uh, but would you agree with me that bribery under any valid definition requires that a specific quid pro quo be proven? Yes, more importantly, the Supreme Court is focused on that issue, uh, as well as what is the definition of a quid pro quo. So if military aid or security assistance is part of that quid pro quo, where in the July 25th transcript does President Trump ever suggest that he intends to withhold military aid for any reason? He doesn't. And that's the reason we keep on hearing the words circumstantial and inferential. And that's what is so concerning is that those would be appropriate terms. It's not that you can't have a circumstantial case. Those would be appropriate terms if these were unknowable facts. But the problem is that you have so many witnesses that have not been subpoenaed, so many witnesses that we've not heard from. Right. You know. so, so if it's not in the transcript, then it's got to come from witness testimony. And I assume you've reviewed all the witness testimony. So you know that no witness has testified that they either heard President Trump or were told by President Trump to withhold military aid for any reason, correct? Correct. So let me turn to the issue of obstruction of justice quickly. I think you assumed, uh, as I did, that when Democrats have been talking about obstruction, uh, it was specifically related to the Ukraine issue. And I know you've talked about that a lot today. You've clearly stated that you think that President Trump had no corrupt intent um, on page 39 of your report. You said something else, I think, that bears repeating today. You were highlighting the fact that the Democrats appear to be taking the position that uh, if a president seeks judicial review over executive branch testimony or documents subpoenaed by Congress, that rather than letting the courts uh, be the arbiter, Congress can simply impeach the president for obstruction based on that. Did I hear you say that if we were to proceed on that basis, that that would be an abuse of power? Um, I, I did, and let me be very clear about this. I don't disagree with my colleagues that nothing in the Constitution says you have to go to a court or wait for a court. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you want a well-based, a legitimate impeachment case to set this abbreviated schedule, demand documents, and then impeach because they haven't been turned over when, so, when, the, when they go to a court, when the president goes to a court, I think that is an abuse of power. That's not what happened uh, in Nixon. And, in fact, the ultimate decision in Nixon was that there are legitimate executive privilege claims that, claims that could be raised. And some of them deal with the type of aides involved in this case, like a national security advisor, like a White House counsel. And so th the concern here is not that, there is, that, that you can't ever impeach a president unless you go to court. It's just that you shouldn't when you have time to do it. So if I were to summarize your, your testimony, no bribery, no extortion, no obstruction of justice, no abuse of power. Is that fair? Not on this record. So the emphasis, again, is there is no evidence of any crime. But they're pushing forward with it anyway. Let me ask you this. Who is it that has any concern for the American nation and the system of laws that govern it would actually seek to convict a man who is guilty of no crime and will not even produce evidence of the crime further will not even allow testimony that would show anything exculpatory they're anti-american wake up they are trying to misuse the constitution to do what it is not designed to do and remove a duly elected president knowing that once they do that they have made the presidency untenable and therefore, how long can constitutional republics stand? 
Representative Matt Gates of Florida also uh, questioned not just Mr. Turley, but all four of the legal professor witnesses who showed up on the 4th of December. His dissertation, if you will, was remarkable. Gentlemen, yields back, uh, Mr. Gates. The will of the American people also elected Donald Trump to be the president of the United States in the 2016 election, and there's one party that can't seem to get over it. Now, we understand the fact that in 2018 you took the House of Representatives, and we haven't spent our time during your tenure in power trying to remove the Speaker of the House, trying to delegitimize your ability to govern. Frankly, we'd love to govern with you. We'd love to pass USMCA. We'd love to put out a helping hand to our seniors and lower prescription drug prices. It's the will of the people you ignore when you continue down this terrible road of impeachment. Professor Gerhardt, you gave money to Barack Obama, right? Uh, my family did, yes. Four times? Uh, I, that sounds about right. My, yes. Mr. Chairman, I have a series of unanimous consent requests relating to Professor Feldman's work. The first, Noah Feldman, Trump's wiretap tweets raise the risk of impeachment. Gentlemen will suspend. Has, 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 what time? Has, we'll take that time off. Has the uh, gentleman submitted, uh, have we seen those, you know, that, that material? We can provide it to you as is typical and we'll for you. The, and we'll consider the unanimous uh, consent request later after we've reviewed Very well. The Very well. Thank you. you. Gentlemen, may continue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Feldman wrote articles entitled, Trump's wiretap tweets raise risk of impeachment. He then wrote, Mar-a-Lago ad belongs in impeachment file. And then uh, Mr. Jake Flanagan wrote in, uh, in Quartz, a Harvard law professor thinks Trump could be impeached over fake news accusations. My question, Professor Feldman, is since you seem to believe that the basis for impeachment is even broader than the basis that my Democratic colleagues have laid forward, do you believe you're outside of the political mainstream on the question of impeachment? I believe that impeachment is warranted whenever the president abuses his power for personal benefit or to corrupt the democratic process. Did you write an article entitled, It's Hard to Take Impeachment Seriously Now? Yes, I did write that and article. And in that article, in, did you write, did you write, hold on, I've limited on time, sir. I wrote did you that write, article. since, in, since the like 2018 the midterm sir? election, House Democrats have made it painfully clear that discussing impeachment is primarily or even exclusively a tool to weaken President Trump's chances in 2020. Did you write those words? Until this call in July 25th, I was an impeachment skeptic. The Very call well, changed I, my mind, sir, and for Thank good you, reason. I appreciate your testimony. Professor Carlin, you gave 2000 bucks, or you gave 1000 bucks to Elizabeth Warren, right? Uh, I believe so. You gave 1200 uh, bucks to Barack Obama? I have no reason to question that. And you gave 2000 bucks to Hillary Clinton? That's correct. Why so much more for Hillary than the other two? Because I've been giving a lot of money to charity recently because of all of the poor people in the United States. Well, those aren't the only, those aren't the only folks you've been given to. Now, you, you, have you ever been on a podcast called Versus Trump? I think I was on a live panel that the people who ran the podcast called Versus Trump on that, do you remember saying the following? Liberals tend to cluster more. Conservatives, especially very conservative people, tend to spread out more, perhaps because they don't even want to be around themselves. Did you say that? Yes, I did. Do, do you understand how that reflects contempt on people who are conservative? No, what I was talking about there was the natural tendency, if you put the quote in context, the natural tendency of a compactness requirement to favor a party 
whose voters are more spread out. Well, and I do not have contempt hold on. I'm, again, I'm very, I'm, I'm very limited on time, Professor. And, and so I just have to say, when you talk about how liberals want to be around each other and cluster and conservatives don't want to be around each other and so they have to spread out, it makes people, you may not see this from, you know, like the ivory towers of your law school, but it makes actual people in this country when feel like, excuse me, me, you don't get to interrupt me on this time. Now, let me also suggest that when you invoke the president's son's name here, when you try to make a little joke out of referencing Baron Trump, that does not lend credibility to your argument. It makes you look mean. It makes you look like you're attacking someone's family, the minor child of the president of the United States. So let's see if we can get into the facts. To all of the witnesses, if you have personal knowledge of a single material fact in the shift report, please raise your hand. And let the record reflect. No personal knowledge of a single fact. And you know what? That continues on the tradition that we saw from Adam Schiff, where Ambassador Taylor could not identify an impeachable offense. Mr. Kent never met with the president. Fiona Hill never heard the president reference anything regarding military aid. Mr. Hale was unaware of any nefarious activity with aid. Colonel Vindman even rejected the new Democrat talking point that bribery was invoked here. Ambassador Volker denied that there was a quid pro quo, and Mr. Morrison said there was nothing wrong on the call. The only direct evidence came from Gordon Sondland, who spoke to the President of the United States, and the President said, I want nothing. No quid pro quo. And you know what? If wiretapping a political opponent's an impeachable offense, I look forward to that Inspector General's report, because maybe it's a different President we should be impeaching. Gentlemen's time has expired. So, none of these illustrious four professors, one of them actually being an honest man, had any knowledge about any fact that was uncovered that was that pointed toward impeachment in the Schiff hearing and they couldn't bring up anything here and then Gates goes back through the key witnesses that Adam Schiff called and made it clear that none of them demonstrated that the president had done anything wrong why are we impeaching this president based on no crime and no evidence of same because the progressives and the Democrat Party are out to take down the government so that they can be so that they can govern the people instead of being governed by the people. If you think differently, then you offer your explanation for what we now know. It's ridiculous. And the thing is, you keep think you keep wanting to believe they're going after Trump. Their bullseye is not on Trump. You are the ones in the crosshairs. And if they do this, then what protection do you have if your very vote can be simply mitigated and ignored by a Congress? Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking, we'll be back right after this. May the magic of Christmas bring you happiness and joy. Happiness and joy. Mojo Five O. Hey, it's Adrian Slade. With fake news from news channels that were once even slightly trustworthy, and a social media that's guiding you by the hand like a child, controlling what they call conversational health and filtering out stories that someone else deems credible to you, where do you go for unadulterated libertarian and conservative discussion? How about right here on the Adrian Slade Show? Destroying the lies and dismantling the narratives, one story at a time. Unfiltered conversations, only on Mojo 5.0. Live free.
Dr. Ken Brown here, host of Gut Check Project with my co-host, Eric Rieger. Eric, we've been seeing Mojo guys over there and over here at Spoonie talk about Atrontil for bloating. I've seen in my practice that Atrontil is a whole lot more than just a bloating product. Yes, it does a whole lot more than just fix bloating because of the polyphenols that you find in Atrontil. You're exactly right. The polyphenols are those molecules that we find in the Mediterranean diet. It makes vegetables and fruits very colorful. What are some of the things that these polyphenols do, Eric. These polyphenols can actually stop inflammation. They can help you have more energy. They can help you with anti-aging. And polyphenols are great for athletes. It sounds like it's going to help a whole lot more people than just bloating. Tell me how everybody should be taking Atrontil. If you want to dose Atrontil, it's two capsules three times a day, basically with your meals. But if you aren't bloated and you just want that polyphenol intake every day, two to three capsules a day will work for you. Go to lovemytummy.com slash mojo. You know what makes you feel really good about yourself? Doing something good for somebody else. And if you'd like to do that today, go to JDRF.org. Join them in the fight against type 1 diabetes. JDRF.org. It's something good you can do for the world. JDRF.org. Close out this second hour and the sh- and, uh, and the show for this time. I'm feeling a little bit drained because I'm worn out. This is the type of stuff that's going on now that just um, crosses my mind. It's ridiculous. So I need you to understand something about the whole thing with impeachment. The fact that they're going about it illegitimately. They're not after Trump. They're after you. Think about this. If they can accuse someone of a crime with no evidence and it's known that they have no evidence and they can actually find a way to remove him from office after you the American people duly elected him and generally are pleased with how the country is operating under his under his guidance or leadership are they taking aim at him or are they taking aim at you for having chosen somebody they, with whom they disagree? And if they can do this, then they can do this to any president. And once they negate your vote, do you really think they're going to allow you to cast another that might go against them, that would delegitimize their position? Do you really think that? Wow. My problem with a lot of the American people today is they don't think things through and they keep trying to give people who demonstrate that they are not American in their thinking the benefit of the doubt. To me, I give people the benefit of a doubt that actually is credible, that it might exist. There is no doubt that the progressives in the Democrat Party are anti-American. They are the most obvious subversives you've ever seen. Let me go back to something way back in the first segment because it was very interesting when we talked about talking about the economy here's some some stats that um, some numbers they call Trump's numbers this is from factcheck.org 
and they went through jobs, unemployment rate, um, they went through a number of things, and they noticed that, well, gee, job openings, this is from July, they, they put this out in July of 2019, job openings up 30%, economic growth rate 3.1%, Home prices up 22.5%. U.S.-Mexico border apprehensions up 80.3%. Corporate profits up almost 12%. Food stamp recipients down 15.7%. Oh, the manufacturing jobs that Joe Biden said were never coming back up 486,000. Some of the numbers, not all the numbers are as positive. So I, I wanted to just kind of re recap those two before I move into this last one because it is personally just disgusting to me. And I, and I mean that sincerely. It's disgusting to me. It's the subject of reparations for slavery. I find it offensive. I find it immoral. I find it unethical. So let me tell you what prompted me to look at this. The Telegraph, which is a UK <laughs> publication, put this story out on the 3rd of December this year. Evanston, Illinois, City of Illinois, has announced that it will create a reparations fund for its African American community through a new tax on marijuana sales. So they're going to basically tax you for getting high so that they can implement something that you have to be high to agree to. There's nothing wrong with you if you think that there should be reparations. I'm not and I, I'm not saying that cavalierly. I'm not even saying it pejoratively. It's just true. There's something wrong with you. You have a hole in your soul where God and reason should be. Okay? Let's go through this. Because it's not, it's not that hard. I mean, it really isn't that hard. So I'm going to go through it. Let's start with a real basic truth. There is neither a moral nor any ethical premise to support federal reparations to blacks for chattel slavery in America. Why do you say that? It was a terrible thing that happened. Didn't say it wasn't a terrible thing that happened. Slavery was never a federal law or policy. Never was. Eight of the 13 original colonies, or states, eight of them allowed slavery, and of necessity, the 1787 Constitutional Convention created a provision so that that particular issue would not prevent the creation of a legal framework allowing the states to form a union. A union. Had to be able to govern this thing somehow, and you had to get past certain issues. Now, slavery was addressed in the Constitution, and it was done on the basis of population. And this came down to looking at things with regard to direct taxes, because there were no income taxes uh, when the Constitution was written, that you need another one and a quarter centuries to come up with that foolishness. But it, and it also played in determining how many uh, seats that each state would have in the House of Representatives. 
didn't have any effect on the Senate, as you know. Every, um, every state has two two senators, but the number of the number of um, representatives that would be able to send to Congress, the House of Representatives, was going to be dependent upon population, which obviously means the more people you have in your state, uh, the more representation you can have. And this is what uh, the way they worked that out is what we now know as. Article 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, also known as the infamous or famous, depending upon your perspective, three-fifths compromise or clause. Here's what it says. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So we're saying, hey, if you are unencumbered, if you're a free person, or you're someone who is an indentured servant, Okay, you get to be counted for you get to be counted full. If you're an Indian who's not taxed, well, you don't get counted, and that reason is probably because you're still a citizen of one of the native tribes, which means you already have a country, ain't this one? And then it says three fifths of all other persons. It doesn't say three fifths of slaves. That's to be determined, and that is to whom it also applied. If you were not free and you were not an Indian who was not being counted as part of another tribe or their tribe, if you didn't fall into that category, then you were counted as three-fifths of a person. Now, notice that the word slave, the word African, they don't appear anywhere in Article 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. And I have concluded through my looking at it that there are two reasons for this. The peculiar institution of slavery was not codified as part of federal law. Its practice was a state matter. As I said, eight of the 13 states, the original states, allowed slavery. Five did not. It wasn't something that the feds were trying to determine. They said, you know what? We're staying out of it. So they did not take jurisdiction from a federal perspective on slavery. In fact, the Constitution, as written, neither condemned nor condoned slavery. All it said was, if we're going to determine taxes and representation, this is how you're going to count people. The second reason that I say um, that this is not a federal issue, the founders did not, they considered slavery a class, not a race issue. And if it's a class issue in these United States, people change classes all the time. They do. Even today, people can go from one class to another, upper, middle, lower, free, incarcerated. They can change classes. 
So this was a class issue, not a race issue. America had persons. They were either free, indentured servants, Indians not identified as citizens of their tribes, and other persons. I know how much white progressives and their melanated pets, or their pets of color, want to scream over and over again, America thought I was three-fifths of a person. Well, idiot, had they fully counted you when you were a slave, there would have been more, even more, segregationists and slave-owning representatives in the House, of Rep- in the House, in the Congress. How do you think that would have worked out for you? Think about that. You would have had at least one-third more slave-owning representatives in the House of Representatives than you otherwise did. How do you think that would have affected legislation that was drafted for the whole country, not just the South? Now, here's an interesting thing about the uh, uh, defining that as a class. And you take race out of it because that's exactly what the Constitution did. It did not say anything about race with the exception of talking about Indians. Many people overlook or even deny the fact that whites were also among that other person's class. Yes, they were um, indentured service, but they were also slaves. Didn't necessarily get released. The New York University Press put out an article called White Cargo that dealt with that in detail. Now, many more people might be surprised to learn that some Indians were also in the other person's class. Gentleman wrote a book about that very thing, indicating that Native Americans were kept to slaves by Europeans, by white folks. And that was going on even before America was formed. Now, another thing which is I find hilarious, because when you talk to a lot of the, uh, I'll just call them what, I, I'll just call it, see, ignorant folks of color. They actually seem unaware or in denial of the fact that there were Africans living as free persons in antebellum America, antebellum meaning before the Civil War. And there were two types of free persons of color or black people who were not slaves in America. Those that were either freedmen or former slaves who had gained their freedom one way or another, you think that was impossible? No, it wasn't impossible. And you didn't need the Civil War and the abolition of slavery to accomplish it. It was accomplished even before the Civil War happened. I'm not trying to say the Civil War shouldn't have happened. I'm just telling you the deal. There were also free people of color. They were born free. They were never enslaved. The three-fifths clause never applied to them. And if you were four-fifths, excuse me, if you were a former slave, four-fifths, wow, if you were a former slave, then you crossed over between classes having been in a class where the three-fifths clause did apply to you and then crossing over into one where it did not apply to you. 
Slavery was not a race issue. It didn't attach to your skin color. Otherwise, there would have been no free people of color. There would have been no uh, freed slaves who had full freedom. Wouldn't have been that. Yeah, but they were treated different. I understand all that. But that's a state issue, not a federal issue. And you're not looking for state reparations per se, at least now, maybe we are in the case of uh, Evanston, Illinois, but you want the federal government to come up with money. And the federal government is like, why would we pay for the... <clears throat> so let's get this straight. In 1789, when the uh, Constitution was ratified, and afterward, there were whites and Indians the Constitution also considered three-fifths of a person. And there were blacks who were constitutionally free and full persons. See, that's not quite as cut and dried as white progressives and their uh, melanated pets would have you believe. The federal government, make sure you hear this clearly, the federal government sought neither to establish, to institute, nor to regulate slavery or enslaved peoples. That was not their gig. They wanted nothing to do with it. They simply acknowledged that these types and these situations and these people were in existence within the states. That's it. And the only thing they were doing was, you know what? We're going to define this thing in a way where you guys can agree on how to run your business without getting in each other's business. And then we're going to call it a union. That's basically what they did. Didn't hold together all that long. 1789 uh, was when the Constitution was ratified. 70. 172 years later you had a civil war so didn't last all that long by the way in case people are forgetting slavery in the United States only existed between 1776 and 1863 let's say because there was no United States before 1776 you had your problem was with Great and the United States of America terminated the peculiar institution and practice of chattel slavery with extreme prejudice. You fought a war in which more than 600,000 men, mostly white, died. And then you added three amendments to the Constitution to ensure that the practice would not return. So 600,000 souls and the blood that accompanied that were paid for slaves so that they would not remain enslaved. And the people who are living today are more than one and a half centuries removed from slavery. 
why would they get money? Ah, never mind. But based on how the federal government dealt with the issue, they didn't get involved with it. So how can the federal government be financially responsible for what it did not create, what it did not perpetuate, and what it did not control? They had nothing to do with slavery. The federal government had nothing to do with it. And that was by design. They took no side because had the federal government taken the side, you would never have formed a union of the original 13 colonies. It wouldn't have happened. So if we can't do this to the feds, and you can't, you can't. So what about going to the states? Because it was logically practiced in the states, right? Well, let's think about that for a minute. In 1860, which was the last election year prior to the Civil War breaking out, there were 34 states total in the Union. Fifteen of these were slave states. Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Now, of those 15, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, oh my goodness, who was the other one? There were four that were border states, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri may have been Maryland. That was the other uh, border state. They were considered border states. They did not secede to join the Confederacy. And they eventually just abandoned slavery. Now, the 11 that did join the Confederacy, they had slavery beaten out of them. So, based on that, I had 34 states. Fifteen were slave states. Four of them didn't go with the Confederacy, and they dropped it. And the other eleven uh, lost the war, and therefore slavery was removed from them. So which state should be held financially responsible for slavery? Now, Illinois was never a slave state, and that's where Evanston is, and they're trying to basically tax weed so, you, so they can get taxing weed. You know, it's in, it, that's, a, that's interesting, because the perception of, of black people is that they smoke a lot of weed so now they're taxing themselves to give themselves reparations wow um, or at least that's what it would be if the if the stereotype of uh, the negative stereotype were to hold you're paying reparations to yourself okay have at it anyway Illinois was never a slave state so why should Illinois be setting up a system to pay for what never happened within their borders? Does that make sense? How can they be responsible for what never happened in the state? Or the other 18 non-slave states that were in existence in 1860, should they pay for what was done elsewhere, especially after they successfully pr prosecuted a war to end slavery and ultimately amend the Constitution away from the neutral position that it had regarding slavery and then making it not legal at all in the United States. 
What about the 16 states that did not exist in 1860 and whom slavery was never practiced, it never existed? Are they financially responsible for what happened even before they existed? Before they joined the Union? Particularly if they were not even were, even if they were territories that did not allow slavery, should they be on the hook for slavery? This is tough. So if the federal government, if they were never responsible for slavery, and they weren't, and if the case for, this, for state governments being responsible 150 years after the fact is at best weak, and it is weak, and that is for not less than 39 of our current 50 states, then whose purse should be raided for reparations? Because once you get rid of the federal government, and once you once you eliminate the states, the state governments, because remember, whoa, those original eleven, no, those governments no longer exist. They were taken away. The state governments were totally revamped. They even have new constitutions. They they no longer exist. How are you going to hold them accountable today when they are not the entities who were involved? That only leaves the citizens of the United States. So should they be compelled to pay? Consider the following. Even in the slave South, the vast majority of whites did not own slaves. The entire nation, so, you know, basically up to 75% of whites in the South did not own slaves. And when you take the entire national population into account, then that percentage of whites who own slaves goes down to less than 2%. So should 98 of the population pay for what less than 2% are responsible? And everybody's dead, by the way. And those percentage, those, those percentages actually refer to what was going on before 1892. Why is 1892 important? Because 1892 is the year in which Ellis Island opened. Here's what you need to know about that. 40% of the people in the United States today trace their entry into this, into this country to Ellis Island. 1892 was more than a quarter century after the Civil War had ended and Amendments 13, 14, and 15 were added to the Constitution. Let's recap here. The federal government addressed indentured servitude and slavery as issues of class, not race, left it to the states. Only 15 of the 50 states had legal slavery. 35 never had it, including the 13 which did not exist prior, excuse me, the 16 that did not exist prior, no, it was 13, uh, to the 15th Amendment being ratified. So at least 70% of the states are not responsible for slavery at all. Why should they pay? Four of the 15 states denounced the institution by rejecting the Confederacy, and the 11 who seceded were destroyed and had their governors retooled. Are they going to pay? Only 2% of Americans owned slaves before it was abolished. And so many entered the country afterward that at least 40% of the population has no historical tie to slavery at all. And likely more than 99% of Americans have no slave ownership in their family history. They're not responsible and were not involved with slavery. Why should they pay? The reparations discussion seems to have an overriding purpose of little benefit to anyone. And that is keeping race baiters 
relevant. And if you can keep the race baiters relevant, then white progressives can continue to use black people to undermine the U.S. nation, not just the government, but the nation. Booker T. Washington said there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. This describes black Democrat elected officials to a T as well as activists like Sharpton and Jackson. All of them are tools of white progressives who know an agitated black community will continue to focus on the lesser goal of equality, who cares, and not seize the benefits of American opportunity. And that's our show. My hope is that Americans of all colors will simply take the following position with regard to reparations. I didn't do it. I ain't paying for it. That's my prayer. That's my hope. And until next week, if God is allowing me to be here, do take care, and we'll talk with you then. This is the seditious, rabble-rousing, liberty-loving, home of fun, entertaining, and compelling talk. Mojo Five-O.